Our Father, we're thankful that all Scripture is inspired by you and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God might be equipped and thoroughly finished unto every good work. We thank you to the Holy Spirit who authored the text and who also interprets the text to our hearts. is here with us tonight and we pray that he would illuminate our hearts to these truths. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm continuing uh, on the prophets. And uh, finally, I've got the... Uh, One of the gizmos for the, for the events that we've been studying. And we've entitled this section of the biblical history as the king's discipline because this is internal. Like the other events were contrasting the kingdom of God coming into the world in conflict with the world. What we're now studying is the dynamics going on inside the kingdom. And basically, it's, uh, it's a revelation of how God reigns. And it's, um, I won't call it an experiment, because that sounds like the outcome of it isn't sure. So rather than call this uh, the God's experimental version of the kingdom, we'll just call it a historical demonstration of the kingdom. And what God is demonstrating is his faithfulness and man's unfaithfulness. And we looked at the golden era of Solomon, and of course that teaches the area of the doctrine of sanctification, but in particular, growth and wisdom. Then we went to the kingdom divided, and the kingdom divided spoke of sanctification again, but this time the doctrine of God's chastening and how that is to lead to repentance. We're now finishing, tonight we'll finish with the kingdoms in decline period. Again, doctrine of sanctification. And this one is a little more intense. Instead of just chastening and repentance, it's chastening repentance and the, it raises the whole spectacle of a promised final solution to this thing. And it's that that we want to look at tonight. So, when we think of, again, as we come to the prophets, we, we want to remember that these guys are all serving a function under the sovereignty of God in history. And when we studied David, we had a good instance of what it meant for someone to be chastened. Uh, it's not David, this is David here. The, the conviction of sin that David really didn't need to be chastened because David's heart was still sensitive toward God and have conviction of sin, the confession of the sin, and the restoration to fellowship. And that restorative process is the um, thing that's being revealed through the Davidic narratives. But when we come later in time, after David in history, the prophets have to cope with something else, and that is a hardening of the nation's heart. A group uh, that has basically disobeyed long enough many of them believers, by the way, probably, who disbelieved long enough that carnality became compounded in their lives. And when this process occurs, one of the corollaries, one of the things that happens is that we get false pictures in our heads about God. A.W. Tozer said that uh, all the church's problems can be laid at the door of one simple problem. Whenever the church has gotten a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? she's always in deep trouble. Every heresy, every heresy in church history has proceeded fundamentally out of a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? 
So the prophets begin not by attacking merely the social issues. Those are involved, but only involved to the extent that they illustrate the primary issue. Social issues are, are revelations of deeper issues. And the deeper issue is this issue right here, the destruction of the mental strongholds of demonic idolatries. Demonically um, agitated, demonically energized images of God that men carry around in our hearts. And these become fastened, as it were, glued to the flesh. So when we operate uh, in the flesh, when we, our patterns are carnal, our thinking is carnal, then these things build up and they have to be cleaned out. And the cleaning out process is very painful to do. So the prophets were engaged in this ministry. And they had to do it by showing that the, the opposition, the rebellion, the sin, was fundamentally wrong and in collision with the Mosaic Law. So over on the right side of this chart, we show the illustration of Elijah's ministry is a total failure of economic security and religious promises of the Baalist agenda. Direct contrast of the word of Jehovah. Those two sentences I put in that box illustrate Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. Remember, those are the two canons of truth. Men are evaluated in terms of two issues. What we call the rational test. Does the belief line up with the word of God or not? That's the test of Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. And the test goes on to say, don't accept miracles. Miracles are not proofs of orthodoxy. They never have been proofs of orthodoxy. Pharaoh's magicians did many miracles. It's not a proof that Pharaoh is a believer. So Deuteronomy 13 cuts to the quick and says the issue is whether or not there is rational and logical consistency with the word of God previously revealed. And the word of God previously revealed, of course, in this case, was the Pentateuch. The second test that is given in Scripture is an empirical test, and that's Deuteronomy 18, but it's a negative empirical test. It's a test that says, if you have genuine prophet who is genuinely telling you what the Word of God is, then that will surely come to pass. Not 90% come to pass. Not some obscure, partial coming to pass that could be interpreted 500 different ways like Nostradamus or somebody. But the Scriptures will come to pass in 100% true with clarity. So... That's the issue here, then, that's going on in the overall ministry of the prophets. Now, we developed that, and we said that the prophets used many uh, devices, and we've been studying those devices. And we said the prophets largely operated trying to deal with a two-track problem. On the one hand, the prophets insisted that... God's promises in the Abrahamic covenant would be true. So, let's get that down. So, God's sovereign announcements that the land, the seed, and the worldwide blessing would come to pass will come to pass. But they also had to deal with the fact that in terms of the Sinaitic covenant, we have something here that makes the God's blessing contingent on human obedience. And what this covenant argued was that God is a holy God. He cannot compromise His holiness. God has integrity. And it doesn't make any difference what we do. 
but he is not going to alter his character. He will never alter his character. Any concept of a plan of salvation has to deal with the integrity of God. And that's why it's an unanswered question in the Old Testament. The prophets are trying to show that if you have obedience, you have blessing. If you have disobedience, you have cursing. Over here, God promises blessing. So the question that the prophets have to address is over here you have God's in his sovereignty, over here you have human responsibility. And they're dealing with that all through the books of the prophets, trying to balance this. Now, in our notes, uh, we've gotten to, um, last time, well, let's just go back to, to a place in the notes here so we can get a running head start on this. Um, on page 41, we started with one, the first of three themes that you see in the books of the prophets. These themes are repeated in all the books under different ways, different expressions, uh, in a different, slightly different manner by the different prophets. But the first theme at the bottom of page 41 of the notes is that Jehovah or Yahweh rules surrounding pagan nations as much as he ruled Israel and Judah. See, now, that's something that we want to remember. That he's not sovereign over a part of the world and not sovereign over the other part. And that was a temptation for the Hebrew people to believe. I mean, when they were getting creamed, it was very easy for them to think that the guy with the paddle was some monster from the outside, out of control, over whom God exercised no, no sovereignty. So the prophets are very careful to point out whether it's the Assyrians, whether the Arameans, whether it's the Moabites, who it is. Those nations are called to do their job by the sovereign God of Israel. God of Israel rules over the gods of the other nations. Then we went on in the notes down to, on page 42, the second theme, which we finished last week. And that is that Israel and Judah had broken the Sinaitic covenant and could have no claim on Yahweh's protection. And we dealt with this format. We studied it, mentioned it two nights now, two for two weeks. The Reeve, which is variously translated as lawsuit, case, and sometimes the King James will say a dispute. And you have to watch it because unless you have a concordance, you'll see these words case and dispute and they look so innocent and every day that you don't realize that when you hit that in the text, you're, you're hitting a, a technical word. It's, it's, it should be actually um, capitalized to draw our attention to it. That this is a formal proceeding, this Reeve proceeding. And what it reveals is that God is bringing a case against the nation before the witnesses, the witnesses being the angels. God is bringing a case before the angels saying that this country, this nation that I promised, I promised blessing, they have disobeyed. They have disobeyed. I have been faithful to, uh, to do the things that I promised. They have not been faithful to do the things they've promised. And that's the case the prophets are bringing. All 16 books of the prophets are bringing this case. And we examine four passages, Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah, that, where that same reeve proceeding occurs. And I listed those verses on page 43 of the notes. So, that's to show you that regardless of which prophet you read, you're still reading the same theme. Uh, at the bottom of page 43, 
There's one paragraph there I draw your attention to. We don't have time to do this, but it's an exciting study. Um, I, I think in some of the QA, people brought up, uh, up this up one night. But if you'll read with me the bottom of the notes on page 43 there. To empower the prophet's communication of his disgust and hurt over the nation's disloyalty, the Lord put them through many carefully designed personal trials. Hosea was called into an adulterous marriage so he could personally experience something of the Lord's own grief over the nation. Jeremiah spoke also in the analogy of marriage and divorce, by the way, in the Sinaitic Covenant. So the prophets often had to live out in their personal lives uh, a situation that was analogous to the way God saw the situation. And it's very interesting because apparently what God is saying is only if you do that can you experience what I experience. Uh, this is why, for example, God had Abraham offer Isaac. Um, that passage, back way back in Genesis, that famous passage where God, Abraham you know, offers his son, it's interesting, if you check in a concordance, you know that's the passage that introduces the term the only begotten son. That's where that term first occurs. This is not a New Testament theological term first applied to Jesus. That's a term that occurs over in Genesis describing Isaac. And it's an adumbration, so it's a forward look, it's a preparation of the ultimate, the only begotten son, and the father who loses that son. So, by experiencing these sorts of things, God is having a communication process take place. All right, when we went down, we finished that up, and um, we mentioned last week, page 44 of the notes, the end just above that paragraph 3, that the Davidic monarchy was announced to have terminated that the line of David, and here's where you have to watch the fine print of Scripture. Several things here. The Davidic covenant promised the continuation of the seed of David and the kingdom of David. That's the language. Watch it. What's happening? In Jeremiah, part of the, the royal seed of David has gone down through the southern kingdom and stopped at this guy, uh, Jehoiakim M. And he was one of the klutz kings toward the end of the uh, fall of the, of the southern kingdom. And so the prophets come in and they announce discipline now extends not just to the people in the kingdom, but it extends to the king of the kingdom. And in particular, the house of David. And it's a very stunning announcement in Jeremiah. Twice Jeremiah announces this, that the house of David through Jehoiakim, through this king, will be stopped. There will be no more of that particular line of David sitting ever again on the throne of Israel. And this leads to all kinds of genealogical issues that are arise with the Gospels in the New Testament because many scholars believe that Joseph the human father or the human husband of Mary is a lot, is, traces his lineage back here, whereas Mary traces her lineage back to the seed of David, but not through this line. So that makes Joseph and Mary a very unique couple. And it also explains a lot of the ge genealogical problems that people appear to have trouble with in the New Testament. But the idea for our class on Thursday night is, is that this is just another sign that God is fed up 
He's terminating the blessings on the nation. And he's doing something else here. He's, almost, he's basically eliminating the law in one sense as an act of covenant. The, the, the lawsuit is it. This is all over. Now, we're going to look at this theme um, that we, we mentioned last week, started in on, and that's the third theme. And that's the resolution of this problem that's created in the Old Testament. Yahweh, or Jehovah, solely because of His sovereign elective grace will himself bring about the righteousness necessary for the blessing of Israel. Watch that sentence. I tried to structure that sentence carefully. You'll notice what the sentence doesn't say. It doesn't say, Yahweh, solely because of his sovereign elective grace, will bless the nation. What it says is, is that Yahweh, solely because of his sovereign grace, will bring about the righteousness necessary for the nation to be blessed with. There's a difference. God will supply the righteousness. But in the end, the blessings that accrue to the people are by their submission to His righteousness. The, the, the will, the human responsibility is never eliminated here. So God is going to bring about the final blessing, but He's going to do it not and totally respecting the responsibility of people. People are going to have to believe and trust Him for this righteousness. But He will provide it. So, this is a theme that is, we're going to study tonight. It's developed um, in Deuteronomy 32, just to review for a moment. If you look at uh, verse 26, we'll go back because Deuteronomy 32, remember the national anthem of Israel, outlines the history of the nation. It provided the reformat for the prophets to use. They went back to Deuteronomy 32. But in verse 26, the reeve proceeding is abruptly stopped. Had this been a document from other nations in the ancient Near East, it would have continued. But it stops here. There's something different that happens. This is unheard of outside of Israel, that a reeve proceeding is, is cut off. It's stopped. And it stopped for a reason. In verse 27, notice the reason why God doesn't pursue the extermination which He legally could have of His nation. He says, Had I not feared the provocation of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misjudge, lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant, and the Lord has not done all this. In other words, what God is saying is, the enemies I am using to discipline you, I'm sovereign over them. And however I deal with you, I'm not going to deal with you that ruins my integrity with them either. So I'm not going to lose my integrity dealing with you, and I'm not going to lose my integrity dealing with you guys over here, the bad guys. So to protect God's integrity and His holiness, going back to the Abrahamic covenant, what He had promised He was able also to do, now he says, in verse 28, he begins to announce a new thing. And here we have God's prophetic program. And tonight, we're going to really start into uh, biblical prophecy. Not in all the details, but the basic outlines of biblical prophecy. And why the millennial issue, the pre-post-millennial issue. Because here's where we get involved with it. For they are a nation lacking in counsel. There's no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. 
How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? In other words, God's saying, you know, when I start causing these things to happen in history, that it should be intuitively obvious if you're trapped in these circumstances that you draw conclusions. It's really interesting that he expects, in verse 29 and 30, he expects believers involved in history to draw conclusions just from the circumstances, utilizing insights from the Scripture, but be able to evaluate your circumstances. And he goes on and, and he discusses what he's going to do. In verse 35, this is, a, those of you who read Romans, the first part of verse 35 should look familiar. Vengeance is mine, that's where Paul gets this from. That's very interesting. He quotes from this. That's one of the exciting things about the Old Testament. If, if we taught the New Testament the way we should be teaching it, we would spend probably, because most of us don't know the Old Testament, we would start in and we'd get in Paul's epistle and we'd hit this verse and he'd be quoting the Old Testament. Then what we would have to do is go over for weeks in the Old Testament to get the context of that one verse before we could even go to the next verse. Because Paul taught people who knew the Old Testament and he refers casually. It looks like to us when we read it, these are just casual things that he's quoting. They're not casual things. He cites things assuming, assuming that the hearers of Paul's message have enough training in the Old Testament to pick up the nuances. And, and we don't because... You know, we're Gentile backgrounds, so we have probably, most of us have no background in, in the Old Testament. I know I don't, didn't. Um, so, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near. In other words, this is a judgment upon the nations who are judging Israel. This is a judgment on the judges. This is a resolution to history. And uh, then it shall, he goes on, uh, verse 43, it concludes with something that looks tremendously like the Psalms. You look at verse 43, the language in verse 43 should remind you of the Psalms, particularly in the 90s. All the 90s Psalms are called the enthronement Psalms, and they're looking to the end of history when God reigns. And rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and he will render vengeance on his adversaries, and he will atone for his land and his people. Now, right there, there's revelation of what's coming down the, the, the pipe. But it's couched in such a language that the people to whom it was first addressed probably didn't understand what was implied there. All right. Now, that's the idea that Jehovah now is going to stop the reeve and somehow he's going to, he's going to bless the nation. So, if you'll turn to page 45, we want to trace a theme... Uh, on the notes, page 45, in the Bible, Deuteronomy 29. And we're going to pick up a covenant that we have not studied. It is not a, a major one, and so therefore I've not emphasized it in this series. But it is a biblical covenant. And we want to study this covenant for a few minutes tonight because by studying it, we'll see how God sets up history. What was one of the three promises of the Abrahamic covenant? A land, a seed, a worldwide blessing. Land. So now we're going to face the issue of the land. And, of course, by the land, we don't mean the church. 
We don't mean heaven. We don't mean some religious experience. We're talking about land. Land means land. This land. Sometimes called the holy land, but actually, most of the time, it's been quite unholy. This is God's land. And that's the covenant we're looking at. Real, real estate here. Real political boundaries. And all of that, Judah and Israel, that land was said to belong and would forever, eternally belong to Israel. So now we want to study that a little bit. And in Deuteronomy 29, verse 1, Moses introduces another covenant. This was inside the Sinaitic covenant. So at Sinai, we have the blessing and cursings covenant, but we also have along with it this other one that's embedded in it. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab. Notice it's a second covenant because the next clause says, besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. So this is an additional covenant, second contract. So what we want to do is figure out now what is this second covenant talking about? And Moses summoned all Israel and said, You've seen what the Lord did before your eyes and everything and so forth. And then, verse 14, he says, But not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but with both those who stand with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those not with us here today. In other words, the whole generations. And the, um, verse 21, uh, the, um, it says, The Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the law which are written in the book of law. Now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land, see it's talking about the fact that there's a curse that's going to come upon the land. And verse 24 all the nations shall say, why has the Lord done this to this land and why this outburst of anger? And then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and they served other gods, describing the theological apostles. The anger of the Lord burned against the land. And verse 28, the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. That is, during the exile. That's the exile coming up. Going back to our first uh, overhead that we had tonight, we're talking about something that's going to happen next. The next event we're going to study is the exile, when the nation went into captivity. So, Deuteronomy 32 is written as though the exile has, has happened. Now, verse 29, which we all quote as the limitations of our knowledge, notice the context of verse 29. Verse 29 is the Old Testament mystery of how is God going to, if He's damned the nation, if He's chastened them into oblivion through the exile, what happens to the promise of the land? How is God going to arrange history to make His Word come to pass? And that's the context. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those which are revealed belong unto us and our children that we obey them. Now, I'm going to come back to verse 29 before we finish tonight. That's a key verse on how we walk by faith and how knowledge for the Christian is different than a pagan claim to knowledge. 
what we want to do now is move into the first five verses of the next chapter and observe carefully. This covenant we are studying has been called in biblical theology the Palestinian covenant. Now, Hebrew Christians are not too excited about that term. And they're not too excited about that term because the word Palestine is a Roman term that was coined in the second century after Kokhba's revolt, and it was deliberately created by the Romans to de-Judaize the land. The word Palestine is a manufactured term, not biblical at all, that was introduced to mask over the Judaistic nature of this land. If you go to Israel today, I guarantee you, they don't call the land Palestine. In, in Hebrew, the Hebrews people refer to it as Eretz, Israel. That's the Hebrew word, Aretz, meaning land. That's their term for it, not Palestine. Eretz, Israel. And when you hear on the radio and you read and see on the television, uh, uh, can't think of the prime minister now, Netanyahu, um, when you see him negotiate with, uh, with Arafat and they're talking about giving up the land, this is why they have a hard time giving up the land. The Muslims have a hard time because it's written in the Koran and in their Islamic theology that once Islam has triumphed, you never can retreat. Islam can never retreat from real estate it's taken. That's why there's such a collision. There's a theological collision in the Middle East that Dan Rather can't understand. The collision is between the belief of Islam that once Islam attains control of peace acreage, it shall not, on denial of Allah, ever retreat from that. But on the other hand, you have the Jews that believe it's Aretz Israel given to them by the sovereign God of the Scriptures. That's the collision. And you can negotiate peace forever. But as long as you have people on both sides of the table that believe they have a divine right to the same acreage, you've got a big problem. It's a theological, not a political problem. The politics and the wars are just manifestations of a religious and theological collision. Now, here is why the Jews believe in Eretz Israel. Watch the verses here. Verse 1, Deuteronomy 30. And it shall be when all of these things have come upon you. Now, let's watch this slowly and carefully the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord God has banished. And that's a mouthful, so let's take it slow. Verse 1, first clause. It shall be when all of these things have come, past tense, after these things have come upon you. What things have come upon you? The blessing and the curse. What is the blessing? Golden ear of Solomon. The great kingdom reign. What is the curse? Decline of the kingdom. So, they said, the picture of this verse is, when the blessing, there's Solomon, golden era, then the kingdoms go into decline through the cursing. And then we go into exile. When the blessing and the cursing has come upon you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord God has banished you or moved you. You see, verse 1 speaks of the fact that the people are now in exile and they're looking back on the days of the blessing and the days of the cursing. In fact, many of the 
books of the prophets were canonized during this time. This is why there was such a study of, of Jewish history. The issue is, what went wrong with us? See, they didn't have kings written when they were going through what we've gone through. I mean, we're great. You know, we sit here Monday morning quarterbacking the whole thing, telling them how all the, every little play they should have been made on Saturday afternoon. Well, they didn't have all this great omniscience when they were walking through this. And the Holy Spirit put it all together for them finally. And the books we casually read as Second Kings are really post-mortem analysis of why did we fail. That's why they, ought, they have to be read seriously. They are, they are the pleas and analysis of a suffering group of people who have seen their homeland destroyed, who have been moved thousands of miles. These people were literally moved thousands of miles. Let's, again, look at the map here. They moved literally by the tens of thousands. They, the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians had a neat way of conquering people to make sure they never had any more problems. They transported people from area A and moved them to area B, C, and D. Then they took people from area B, C, and D and moved them into the land. Guess now how the Samaritans arose that are despised in the New Testament. You know who the Samaritans are? They're imports. Those are people that were moved into the land to occupy the land and they were not Jewish people. And therefore, they were always looked upon with askance. When Jesus walked to the Samaritan woman, there's a lot of history behind Jesus' little talk with the Samaritan woman at the well there. The well happened to be the well of Jacob. It was perfectly picked by Jesus to have this import, Gentile import, half Jew, probably by intermarriage, and he's talking to her about eternal life over the well of Jacob. See, there's a lot of imaging that's going on in the New Testament. So, we have this Eretz Israel, and the perspective now is from the exile. Verse 2. They're in the exilic time, and you return to the Lord your God, and you obey Him with all your heart and soul, according to all I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all peoples where the Lord God has scattered you. And right here we have the summary of history. Now that has not happened. It happened partially in the restoration, but the restoration is not, as Daniel found out, the fulfillment of verse 2 of Deuteronomy 30. Verse 2 of Deuteronomy 30 hasn't yet been fulfilled. It is a prophecy of things to come. It is talking about the future of the land of Israel and that Israel will be regathered and will be regathered. This is literal Israel. Notice to whom it is said. This is not addressed to the church. Again, what does he say in, in, in verse, who are in the exile? It's not the church in the exile. It's Jews in the exile. So all this prophecy so far, we'll get the church into it later. Don't worry about it. But right now, let's read the Old Testament the way the Old Testament should be read. See, covenant theology and a lot of things that pass in Protestantism, we have these pastors that say, well, that's the church. It's not the church. Come on. The church isn't there. This is addressed as a contract made with Jewish people with a written contract. They are parties to the covenant. The church isn't there when the covenant is made, and so the church is not included in that covenant in a direct way. So, we have then a future time, question mark, 
And the question mark concerns the fact that Israel will do certain things. What did Jesus do in Palm Sunday that week? What was the famous thing He said when the nation rejected Him? He saw the nation was rejecting them after they threw palms and welcome, Hosanna, who comes in the name of the Christ. Then, then they turned against Him. And Jesus lamented this, and He turned to the people in the capital city and He said, I will not come back until you say, Blessed is He that comes in the name of the Lord. And that was Jesus' announcement. And that's why Israel is a key to world peace. Until Israel repents and recognizes the person of Jesus Christ for who He is, the Messiah, there cannot be world peace. Because this verse requires something to happen. It says that you turn to the Lord. You return to the Lord. You obey Him. Do all that I command you today. And then, verse 3, the Lord will restore you from captivity and He will gather you again from all nations where the Lord has scattered you. That means the Jews are going to go back to Eretz Israel. And how are they going to go back? They're going to go back only on the condition that they submit to the righteousness of God. Why were they excluded from the nation? Because they refused to submit to the righteousness of God. How are they going to get back in the land? By submitting to the righteousness of God. Who is the righteousness of God? New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ. So who are they going to have to submit to? They have to have a source of righteousness that doesn't violate the integrity of God's holiness. And it can't be our works. It can't be their works. It will not cut the mustard when it comes to fellowship with God because of His holiness. So not to compromise His holiness means somehow there has to be righteousness made available. And they are going to return to it and so on. And then, Lord God, will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. Notice verse 5. It's not talking about heaven. This is the kingdom of God is not heaven here. The kingdom of God is on earth, not in heaven. And it is involved with the real estate of the Middle East. And he says, He will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. Well, what was the land the fathers possessed? We've had it in the map. We map it out. That's the land the fathers possessed. I will bring you back into the land and you will possess it and He will prosper and multiply you more than your fathers. That means Israel's golden era under Solomon is but a glimpse of what her glorious future will be. That's the promise here. Amazing promise. And there's a whole future out here and this, what was this kingdom of God is where we get from the New Testament the word, the millennial kingdom. That is the kingdom of God that is talked about here. Jesus Christ, who will bring the nation Israel back into the land and reign with them for a thousand years. So, we are starting to work our way into prophecy. And it starts with this Palestinian covenant, which I haven't mentioned tonight, because the Palestinian covenant sets up part of the answer to the dilemma, O oh Lord... We have been thrown out of our land. We've been thrown out of our blessings by disobedience. What happens to the Abrahamic covenant promise? Land, seed, worldwide blessing. The land is going to be Israel's. This Palestinian covenant or the covenant of Eretz Israel answers that clause in the Abrahamic covenant. Will the Abrahamic covenant come to pass? 
The land will be theirs. Yes. Will it literally come to pass? Or is this just spiritualizing? No, it's a literal interpretation. It literally will come to pass. How will it come to pass? We're not given all the details. All we know from this passage is it will not come to pass. The Jews returning in unbelief to the land of Israel is not the fulfillment of this prophecy. It may be an, a, a, a forward movement ready to get ready for the return of Christ. But that, what you see today with the Jews coming into Israel, they're not coming into Israel because they're submitting to Jesus Christ. That movement that we observe today is not the fulfillment of the Millennial Kingdom. Okay. Now if you'll move to uh, page 45 in the notes in a minute. We, we won't have time to go through all the verses, but in the last full paragraph in the notes on page 45, the prophets uh, repeatedly reminded the nation of these truths which had been originally revealed to Moses. Isaiah spoke of a future time when Israel would again be settled in the land, in the land of Jehovah. And if I give you the reference, I urge you to read these references, folks, to pick up the terminology so you get a feel for the flow of the prophets. Ezekiel wrote that after, notice the word after, after a future judgment, Israel would serve Jehovah. You see, this, the idea that there has to be a judgment prior to returning the land, we know the judgment's the return of Christ, and that's why we are premillennialists. Pre means the judgment comes before the millennial kingdom. Pre millennialism. Postmillennialism is the belief that the church brings in the kingdom. Silly. The church brings in the kingdom. What does the church got to do with the kingdom? Is this talking about the church here? No. Jesus brings in the kingdom. And so that's why all the prophets talk about a judgment and then the return to the land. Amos saw a time in Israel's future when its ancient cities would be rebuilt and the people would be planted by the Lord on their land. Clearly, these prophets were not inventing a new message as Bible critics try to say to their students. Far from any new message, the prophets' visions and teachings had to pass, on the, tr pass the truth test of Deuteronomy 13, which required theological continuity with Moses. From this foundation of the Torah, they were led by the Holy Spirit to expand upon Moses and deal with their contemporary scenes so each prophet is slightly different in style and emphasis. All right. So we find out then that Jehovah is going to establish the righteousness. Turn the page in the notes, page 46. We come to Habakkuk. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then you go Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and then the HZHZ. So you turn to Habakkuk, and Habakkuk chapter 2. Open all those sticky pages. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk is complaining about the suffering of the people. If you want to see how biblical believers in the Old Testament prayed, how bold they were to bring their complaints to God. They weren't reticent to cry out to God. It's phony piety to be really ticked at God for doing something and then come into his presence with all religious words. 
because he sees right through it. So, the guys in the Old Testament, if you read the Psalms, I mean, they come in with pretty heavy stuff. I can show you a Psalm where, if you translate it from the original Hebrew, the guy's so mad at God for what's happening in the temple, he says, you get your hands out of your pockets and walk through this mess. And that's a prayer. Can you imagine what happened in a prayer meeting and somebody said that, you know, looked up at God and said, get your hands out of your pockets and move it. Now, is this kind of disrespectful of God? Well, yes, in one sense. But what's more honest? If you feel that way, tell him that. So, in, in Habakkuk chapter 2, this is goes on before we get to Habakkuk chapter 2. Look, at, look up a little bit in, in chapter 1, verse 13. See the complaint there? Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? See, this guy's angry. And he's got a problem. Habakkuk, as a prophet, has administered the reeve. Remember the reeve? What does the reeve say? The reeve says God is throwing the nation out. He's had it. That's it. And yet, Habakkuk knows that God is righteous. And it's a struggle in this guy's heart. What, Lord, are you doing here? I mean, there are believers in this country. There are people that honor you. How come we're getting swept away with all this? Why are our families getting killed and slaughtered? What is happening? Why us? And so he goes on, and at this point, God speaks. And verse 2 of Habakkuk chapter 2, the Lord intervenes in this little monologue, now suddenly becomes a dialogue. The Lord answered me and said, Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads, uh, who, uh, who reads it may run. In other words, put it on a billboard. I don't want any excuses for somebody who doesn't read this and understand it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. This is a prophecy. It hastens toward the gold and it will not fail. God's sovereign promise. What is that rooted in? Sinaitic covenant or Abrahamic covenant? Abrahamic covenant. It will not fail. Though it tarries, though it's delayed, you wait for it. For it will certainly come and it will not delay. Behold, now this is the verse that opens up the entire book of Romans in the New Testament. Here it is. And it's a great revelation through the prophet Habakkuk. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. See, Paul didn't invent justification by faith. It's right here in Habakkuk. Now let's look at what's going on here, because this is a great discovery. And if you catch the glimpse of this, you'll see that the New Testament is not new at all. Very little in the New Testament is new, and what is new in the New Testament hasn't anything to do with what we think of it as new, is Jesus, for example. Jesus all prophesied. All the prophecies of Jesus are in the Old Testament. So that's not new. What the prophets have done is they've lived from the time of Abraham. They've seen the Exodus happen. The Exodus was the birth of the nation. And then we have the destruction of the nation. And here are all the prophets. And Habakkuk is one of these guys down here. They are watching the collapse of a nation that entered into a covenant treaty with God. And these guys, down at this point in history, are realizing something. They said, you know, after all this, after our sin, after how much we've been disloyal to God, we have to conclude that we can never, 
ever please him by obeying the law through natural means. All this period of history has shown one thing. It has shown that the flesh cannot obey the Word of God. It is depraved. It cries out in rebellion. It cannot consistently obey the Word of the Lord. And the failure of the nation weighed heavily on the hearts of these men. They had to administer the funeral of their own country. And they didn't do it lightheartedly. And they, they drove them to their knees to cry out to God, why has this happened? And the answer of several of them, and Habakkuk has it right here, in verse 4, what he says, notice the word right, it occurs twice in this verse. Behold as for the proud one. Now, in context, what do you suppose the proud one is? What has he said in verse 3? He said, I have a promise. Now you wait on it and stop the gimmicks. Because everybody in the back of the day had all kinds of plans. They're going to solve the problem. And we're going to do this. And we're going to have this program. And we're going to reform ourselves. And we're going to pledge to God we'll never be bad boys and girls again. And we're going to go through all this hoopla. And that will assuage God and it'll be right. That's the proud one. And God says the person who is trying to manufacture works of the flesh, his soul is not right. But the one who waits on it, the soul that is righteous, the guy that really has righteousness, is the guy that you can tell because he's going to walk by faith. And what in context is faith? It's waiting for God's solution to the problem. In the Old Testament, it was all future. In the New Testament, the revelation of the righteousness of God's past. Now, this is why Paul picks up, and by the way, in Romans, guess the two men that Paul quotes to build the doctrine of justification by faith. Who are they? Abraham, up here at the beginning, and Habakkuk, down here at the end. You watch. You read the Romans, and you watch your little marginal references, and you see where Paul gets doctrine and justification from, and it's from these two guys. The beginning and the end of Old Testament history. Abraham, justification by faith. God gave him righteousness, or he couldn't enter into a covenant with him. God can't enter covenant with sinners. So Abraham was given or credited righteousness, and Habakkuk concluded that the only way anybody could ever live in the, in the land or in Israel is by faith. We have to wait on God's provision. Okay. This led, now if you look at the notes on page 46, it led to another idea that is now revealed in Old Testament history. And this does prepare us for the New Testament as to what the church is doing. Second paragraph, page 46. Tightly bound to this realization of the necessity of faith to be counted as righteous enough to enter Yahweh's kingdom was the perception that not all Hebrews would so believe. Beginning with the prophet Elisha, we read more and more about the faithful remnant. That's a technical word. Faithful remnant. Yahweh himself claimed in Elisha's day there were 7,000 believers in the northern kingdom. Remember, Elisha was depressed. I'm the only guy around. Sniff, sniff. And God says, never mind, Elisha. There's 6,999 other guys around besides you. So just relax. There are some other guys out there that have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have a faithful remnant within the nation. Oh, now look further. 
Isaiah foresaw the quote, and here's a technical quote from the text, the remnant of Israel who would return and whom the Lord would surely deliver. Now the prophets begin to catch another thing. Oh, they say, we start to see something here. The promises to Abraham are promises not to all the physical seed of Abraham, but to the seed of Abraham who believe. So in the future, however this question mark will be resolved, in the future, when God offers His righteousness to the nation, those who accept it are going to come into the land and they constitute the nation at that point because what happens to all the unbelievers? They're removed. So here, you might have had 25% believers, 75% unbelievers. Now what's going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and He applies the test, do you welcome me in the name of the Lord? And those who do, obviously by definition, are believers. So what happens now to the percent of physical Israel once Christ returns? Answer, 100%. Believers. So at that point, then, is all of Israel in the land? Yes. All of the living Israelites are in the land. But the, the, the glitch on understanding this is that there's all during this time period of the centuries of the Old Testament, there has been a remnant. And the remnant are now seen by the prophets to be those people who walked by faith. And that's what was going on all during this Old Testament period. And it doesn't become clear to them until the end of this process. This is why Paul also in Galatians mentions that thing that we all hear about. The law was a what? A pedagogue. A teacher. Why? How is the law a teacher? To bring us to Christ. What has the law done here? What have we seen it as we've looked over this this year on Thursday nights? We have seen the law given. We've seen the law disobeyed. We've seen the law judge. And now we've seen at the end of Old Testament history, guys are starting to say, Ah, I think I get it. That the Lord, to get that promised blessing, He's going to have to provide the righteousness to get that blessing. We've tried. We tried David. We tried the northern kingdom. We tried the southern kingdom. We tried this. We tried that. We tried everything. And we couldn't get the blessing. We couldn't keep it secure. Because if we didn't sin today, we'd sin tomorrow. It was never secure. So to get security with peace and righteousness, God has to do a work. Which comes now to the bottom of page 46 to the momentous announcement in Jeremiah. Now if you'll look at... Jeremiah 31, this is one of the greatest announcements ever made by any of the prophets. It was made by one of the last of the prophets, the weeping prophet of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was chosen by God for the assignment of talking about yet another covenant. So now we've had the Mosaic covenant, we've had the Abrahamic covenant, we've had the, the, the Mosaic of the Sinaitic covenant, we had the Noahic covenant, We've had Eretz-Israel covenant, and now, lo and behold, we've got another covenant. Does God operate history through contracts? You better believe it. One contract after another. Why do we have contracts? Contracts are written so you can monitor the behavior of the parties to the contract. All right, Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord 
when I will make a new covenant. Notice, not with the church, please. Let's not get the church in here too hastily. We'll get the church into it, but not this year. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with whom? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Talking about the judgment now. So when is this covenant going to be happening? After the days of judgment. That means after Christ returns. The new covenant is, comes into effect with Israel. We'll answer the mystery of what Jesus was doing then on the Passover when he said this is the covenant of blood which we celebrate every communion. Can't get to that because we're not talking New Testament right now. We're reading the Old Testament through the eyes of Old Testament believers. So they say after those days, after the days of judgment, so when they go into the land after Christ returns, premillennial reign of Christ, then this new covenant comes into effect. What does the new covenant do? It says in verse 33, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, they shall be my people, and they shall not teach again. Each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. In other words, no witnessing and no evangelism. So something is going to happen. What do we say? Get back to this diagram again. How many believers in the land in Israel? 100%. No evangelism required. So, and it will not teach the neighbor and so forth. Now, verse 33 refers to a circumcision of the heart that God asked for throughout. On the notes on page 46, you'll see I give you reference to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, where God says, Oh, Israel, circumcise your heart. Meaning that the remnant of believers were regenerated back in here, but only the remnant, not the nation as a whole. Now, in the future, when 100% are believers, now the entire nation is circumcised in their heart. Now regeneration is universal. And he says, continuing, For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Total forgiveness. So something takes place at this future moment in history when the entire nation is restored to fellowship with God. That's the hope of Israel in the Old Testament. That's the hope, by the way, that is sort of half forgotten today by the people now dwelling in Eretz Israel. And when they, you start telling them about giving up the land, they, they freak out. Because to them, to give up the land somehow means, wait a minute, Now I'm not saying this is right thinking, I'm just saying this is how they think. If I give up the land, I'm giving up my future. And it's not just my personal future. This is the future of the meaning of our existence. When people feel that strongly about real estate, you've got to believe they're going to fight hammer, tooth, and nail for it. And it's a failure of our analysts to understand you are never going to introduce peace into the Middle East while you have two absolutely conflicting religious beliefs. Can't happen. Never. Never will happen. 
It'll go on for, if the Lord tarries, it'll go on for hundreds of years more. As long as we have this theological collision. Okay, verse 35, Thus saith the Lord who gives the sun, uh, the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars by night. He's the God of creation who stirs up the sea. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, says God, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease. As I am the creator of the universe and hold it together in my physics and my chemistry laws, Israel shall always live. No one shall eliminate Israel. Arafat to Hitler. No one will ever destroy the Jew from history. Can't happen. The Jewish existence in history is a physical reminder to the human race of God's promises. All right, we're going to conclude tonight with a chart. I just point this out to you on page 47. If you want to be interested in chasing down these covenants, I've tried to summarize the last uh, references to it. Um, and we're tomorrow, uh, next week, I'm going to start page 48, the unresolved mystery left by the prophets. In other words, as the Old Testament concludes this period of history, the prophets are left with a problem. Remember I said we get back to Deuteronomy 29:29. What are the secret things that belong unto the Lord our God, which he has not revealed? That's the dilemma of the Old Testament saying. He didn't know how this is going to come to pass. He only knew that it would come to pass. But he didn't know the details. And Paul refers to this in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, there's a mysterious statement made, which now, if you know the Old Testament, will click with you. As Paul's discussing justification by faith, he comes down and he makes this statement, that God may be just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. We're going to see next week that that's the resolution to the mystery of the Old Testament. Father, we thank you for the preservation of Scripture and the preservation of your people as a physical evidence of your faithfulness, that your existence of Israel will go on and on until the return of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we know that history has a purpose, history has a goal, and no matter what the news story says tomorrow, we know what the news is going to be the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, on to the end. We already know the future through the gracious word that you've given to us. We pray that this would be used by the Holy Spirit in our lives to motivate us to submit, to obey, and to enjoy you and your righteousness. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight we will not have a time for our Q&A afterwards, but we'll get to that next week if you have questions.